huge thanks to the musicians. Haven't they done well? Yeah. I, I like a carol service where you can really sing and you can get tore into these wonderful old songs. I don't like a carol service where there's lots of performance and everything's in a key that the common man cannot actually sing in. So uh, thank you so much for facilitating. And you're, you're in good voice. Do you, you know, do you think you're in good voice? I think you're in good voice. Um, I, I think it's all down to the, the drink that you had, the spicy drink that you had at the start. Um, imagine Christmas without music. Yeah, make you weep, wouldn't it? Um, all of us have our own little favorite Christmas tunes that maybe come out a bit earlier than they should. Did anybody play any Christmas tunes in November? Anybody? Anyone? What about October? Did anybody any Christmas tunes in October? I remember walking into a, a, a bedroom in our home and it seemed like maybe it was August. I don't know. But my finger style Christmas guitar music books were spread out on the bed. And, and a young lady was playing some. Was that August? It was maybe September. Um, we all have those songs that we love. And we all have those Christmas songs as well, probably, that whenever they come on the playlist, you start sending Alexa death threats to get it off quickly or to move on to the next song. Um, for example, yesterday in the car, Bing Crosby only got the words silver bells out of his mouth and Samuel nearly pulled the, the sound system out of the car to get him turned off. Uh, we all have our songs that we love and we all have our songs that we hate. Um, and one of the Christmas songs that I just, and this might offend some of you, so I'm sorry, but I, I just despise, is a song written in, in 1971 by John Lennon uh, called uh, Happy Christmas, War is Over. I just hate it, okay? It, and just get this off my chest tonight and then we'll move on. It's miserable and it's dour and I, oh, I just don't like it at all. Um, I never had a Beatles phase. Just I did lots of stupid things in my youth, but I didn't fall into the black hole that is the Beatles phase. And I'm, I'm proud of that. I, I prefer my singers to have voices that have actually broken. And John Lennon's Christmas song was actually an anti-Vietnam uh, protest song, anti-war song. That was the reason that he wrote it. And uh, whenever he wrote it and released it, he then also bought billboard space all over the place. And he put up these these uh, adver advertisements or pictures that you see on the screen. But I don't, I don't agree with the title, Happy Christmas, War is Over. And I want to bring a message tonight, our brief meditation tonight called Christmas, War is Not Over. <laughs> War is Not Over. We all have weird things as well that we like to do at Christmas, little traditions. I remember as a kid sitting in my mate's house, I was about 16, and my mate's dad was trying to tell me that it was really good to listen to lectures at Christmas time. He looked forward to, to watching these lectures on TV, and I can remember sitting there laughing at him as he told me that lectures at Christmas were really good. And I'm like, you are mad. You're daft. But one of the things that I now like to do at Christmas is listen to lectures, <laughs> uh, which is a, a bit of a sign of, of age creeping in. And there's a set of lectures that I have that I listen to about every two or three years at Christmas by a historian called Jerry Bowler. And this man is living the dream. 
because he has made a career out of studying, researching, writing about and teaching about Christmas. <coughs> University level courses about Christmas and the history of it and the different traditions and it is fascinating stuff. And I've been listening to him this week. So I've got some trivia for you just to, for, to enjoy yourself with. Uh, here is the, the humble mince pie. God bless it. Did you know that in the sort of 14, 1500s, mince pies were designed to be like mangers. The purpose of a mince pie was the pastry was the manger. And then inside you had your mince meat, your, your sort of sweet mince filling. And then they made a little sort of a lump of, of pastry in the shape of baby Jesus and set it into the, into the pie. Yeah. And the Puritans, they didn't like this. They didn't like anything that was remotely enjoyable and they banned it. And so mince pies changed their shape. And one of the things that people did with mince pies was they put this crisscross pattern on the top of them, which was meant to still resemble the wood that the manger was made from, the, the pieces of wood on the side of it. And uh, mince pies are a good thing about Christmas. Here's something about Christmas that I still find this traumatic <laughs> all these years later. Have, have you... You know, had the experience of being brought to a pantomime. I know there's, there's some people going to a pantomime this week. I remember, I clearly remember, in fact, I know one pantomime in particular. I think it was an Armagh. And this is a long time ago. This is just way too long ago. But uh, I just remember sitting there having one of those sort of six-year-old moments and thinking, that's a man. But he's wearing a ridiculous lady's outfit. And, and then you would look at the lead character in a pantomime. And this also just you know melted my head when I was a kid because the lead character in Peter Pan playing Peter would have been like an 18 year old girl and I was just sitting there thinking what's going on here but according to my historian and my lectures that I've been listening to at raucous Christmas parties hundreds of years ago cross-dressing was the thing that people did they would show up and they would the men dressed as ladies and the ladies dressed as men. And that's where that tradition, which the church didn't like, obviously. But that's how that tradition has been brought into pantomimes. And I was listening to those lectures this week. And Jerry Bowler was going on about saints days that we have during the Christmas season. For example, 6th of December. That's St. Nicholas's Day. God bless him. The history of St. Nicholas is, is fascinating, but I'll not regale you with that tonight. 26th of December is St. Stephen's Day. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the Feast of Stephen, also known as Boxing Day, because the servants would have gone around with boxes of leftovers that their masters would have given to them. 27th of December is the Feast of St. John, not Lenin, but St. John the Apostle. And 28th of December is the one that caught my attention. And so what I'm going to linger on tonight, it's a bit weird. It's the Feast of the Holy Innocents. The Feast of the Holy Innocents. It is not often read about in carol services. Ashley just read the background, the story behind this Feast of Innocents. It never makes it into the primary school nativity play, ever. Um, unlike Nigel, the donkey. <laughs> What's the old King James word? For? Okay, I better not. It never makes it into the nativity play. And it had me second guessing about whether I should address it tonight. But it's just been on me this past week or two. And I want to share on it. One of the central characters of the Christmas story 
is a man called Herod. And Herod was the king in Judea at this time. He was made king by Rome. And he was a man whose evil would have made all of the evil characters that we see in our world today, they would have blushed at what this man got up to. He was a horrible, horrible human being, a brutal man for whom killing was just second nature. Whether it was members of his family, his household, no matter what it was, this was the guy, and you've maybe heard the story, that he ordered when he was dying, he ordered that whenever he finally died, that, that a bunch of people had to be executed at that moment to ensure that there was some mourning in the land for his death. A horrible human being. And one day along come the Magi and they visit King Herod. Now these Magi, the, you know, we, we see these in the, nat- the nativity plays. These are actually Persian astrologers, which is bizarre. And they follow the, the movement of a star and they find themselves in Herod's palace. They're also known as the wise men. But on this occasion, they're not particularly wise because they go to this maniac king, Herod, and they ask him, where is the new king? <laughs> Which was a certain way to get yourself executed in Herod's court. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Not made king like Herod was, but born king. Herod, you have a threat to your throne. And this one has been born king. This one is entitled to the throne, unlike you, who was made king. And what Herod does is he gathers the religious leaders together. He gets them to open up their Hebrew scrolls. And they tell him from Micah 5 that Joel read earlier on, that this ruler, this shepherd king, was to be born in Bethlehem. So Herod sends the, the magi, the wise men, to go to Bethlehem, find the child, suss everything out, and then come back to Herod and let him know where he was. Because Herod says that he wants to worship him too. So they go and they find the child, and then they're warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. And Herod is furious. And when he realizes that he's been outwitted by the Magi, he gives orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. And that became known as the Massacre of the Innocents. And on the fourth day of Christmas, 28th of December, that day, that occasion is remembered. And the point is, God was bringing new life into the world in Jesus. He was doing a new thing, a powerful thing. He was moving among his people. And Herod could not get his hands on Jesus. So he decided he would just wipe out every child who was a similar age. And in the town of Bethlehem at that time, historians reckon that might have been 15 to 20 children. God is doing something new and this wicked man decides to lash out and wipe out a generation in order to stamp out the thing that God is doing. 
And it's starting to sound, if you know your Bible, this event is starting to sound a little bit like John's nativity scene. We've got four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John has a nativity scene. But if you're familiar with John's Gospel, you will know that it's not in his Gospel. Matthew begins with nativity and Luke begins with nativity, but John doesn't. But that's not the only book that he wrote. He also wrote the book of Revelation. And his nativity scene is in Revelation chapter 12. And it's similar to what we had in the story of Herod uh, in Matthew chapter 2. We read in Revelation 12 of a great sign in heaven, a woman, Mary. And she's pregnant with Jesus. And then another, you know, in this apocalyptic literature that you get in the book of Revelation, another sign appears, an enormous red dragon. And I think I shared this with you before, but there is a prophet who appears on TV round about this time of year called Mr. Bean. And Mr. Bean, in unintentional and no one in who, who wrote this episode of Mr. Bean had any idea what they were doing. But every time I see it, I marvel at the fact that he's in a toy shop playing with a nativity scene and he gets this massive reddy colored dinosaur and puts it in the middle of it. And I'm looking at it thinking, that's Revelation 12. And not only is there a dinosaur, but as I'm telling you tonight that, that, that war is not over, he's also got a tank in the scene as well and little soldiers and it's wonderful theology in Mr. Bean. Revelation pictures this woman about to give birth and this dragon who wants to destroy the child because God is coming and God is doing something new and he's doing something different among his people and the enemy Satan the dragon wants to just wipe it out but he can't because the child in Revelation 12, the child is taken away. And we read about war breaking out in heaven. And then the woman is also taken away. And at the end of Revelation 12, the dragon is enraged. And he goes off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And the rest of her offspring are described as those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. And I want you to see the similarity between what Herod did in Matthew 2. God was bringing something new. The enemy wants to wipe it out and he just lashes out and tries to wipe out a generation. And in Revelation 12, the same thing. Whenever the birth of Jesus is described in that type of literature, we have the enemy, the dragon, who just wants to utterly wipe out a generation. And I think in our time that the enemy has an assignment against a generation. And this is the main point I want you to get tonight. It won't be long. I think there's a generation of young people in particular, and, I'm, and I'll put a rough category on it. I would say if you're under 25, talking about you. And if you're over 25, you've got something to do about it as well. But I think there's an assignment against a generation where God wants to do something among young people and the enemy's response is to lash out 
and try to wipe out the whole generation. If you've ever wondered why it's so hard to be a Christian, and if you've ever wondered when you're young, if you're young, why it is so hard to faithfully follow Jesus, is because the war is not over. The war is ongoing. And the enemy wants to extinguish every sign of new life that God puts among people. And I genuinely believe God wants to move among a generation of young people in our time. Teens, 20s, he wants to move among them and he wants to birth something among them. And therefore the enemy wants to destroy that generation. And like the dragon and like Herod, he has unleashed everything against them to try to snuff out any life that God would create among them. A few things that are a feature of his tactics. One is that truth has fallen. We are living sort of in the end of or just after a period that people describe as postmodernism. And the main way you can describe that in simple terms is that there's no such thing as truth. What's true for you and true for me might be different. There are no absolute truths. That is the great lie that we have raised a generation on. That there's no absolute truth. For example, no truth about sexuality and gender. And I ask you, how is that experiment going for this generation? Utter confusion. Hopelessness heartbreak no truth provided truth has fallen truth uh, part of the enemy's arsenal against this generation is to take away rock solid truth and leave them just floundering in the wind there's no truth about creation and purpose and we have raised a generation and told them you are an accident you are a bunch of molecules that somehow came together and that generation now has no sense of purpose, no sense of meaning. There's no truth about the value of a human life. How's that working out for us? If we raise a generation and we don't teach them about the value of a life made in the image of God, we will end up with young adults in despair and in their despair they may come to the conclusion that life isn't worth living because no one has told them the absolute truth of what it means to be alive in the image of God. This is one of the things that the, the enemy is launching against a generation to wipe out the work of God. And it's no coincidence that, that in the Bible, the, Satan is described as a serpent because what has a serpent got in his mouth? poison and what satan is doing is poisoning people with his version of truth we have a generation that has a, a, an ability because of what the enemy is up to to be addicted to anything 20 30 years ago there was probably a limited number of things that if you were if you wanted to get addicted to something you had a limited number of options now there's just so many ways for this generation to become addicted Nicotine is delivered to them in sweet smelling vapes and little capsules called snooze that they stick up in under their, their lips that just gradually, slowly deliver nicotine into their systems. 
all these different ways to get addicted. Alcohol, pornography, just get them hooked on anything. <laughs> because if they're hooked on something, then they will not pay attention to the life of God and what God wants to do among them. And they're a generation also that are carrying an impossible standard, never ever feeling that they're good enough because they're constantly bombarded with, with, with images and constantly bombarded with standards that are unreachable, just unreachable. Never feel that they're good enough in their appearance. Never feel good enough in academic performance. Never feel good enough in their career. Never feel good enough in sport or, or whatever. And if you're always concerned about being good enough, and you're always being presented with this barrage of examples of perfection that you should attain to, then what will happen is anxiety will be at the door ready to batter you within an inch of your life. This is what the enemy's doing in his assignment against a generation. And the question is, if God wants to birth something among this generation, and I believe passionately he does, if he wants to birth something and the enemy like Herod wants to just wipe out the entire generation indiscriminately, just swamp them and wipe them out, how will God protect the new thing that he is birthing. How did he do it in Matthew chapter two? This new life that, that he was sending King Jesus as a baby. How was that protected? It was protected by the most overlooked and marginalized man in the Christmas story, a man called Joseph, who's just like a fringe character. <laughs> it's all Mary and no Joseph. But Joseph was the man who defended this new thing that God was doing. Joseph was the protector of it. And Joseph, one of the things that, that we read about him is that he hears God. So if, if, if those of us who, are, who look back at the, the idea of youth fondly and are not there anymore, can I let you know you have a responsibility. We need Joseph's. The spirit of Herod is alive and well, going after a generation. We need the spirit of Joseph. Joseph was a man who heard God. He heard God in Matthew 1 that Rach read earlier, and he obeyed God by just forgetting his reputation, forgetting what people would say about him. He took this, this young woman as his wife. He took this child as his own. He gave the child a name that wasn't his name, but it was the name that God said he was to give the child, the name Jesus. He heard God. And in Matthew chapter 2, after Jesus has been born, again, he is hearing God. He's hearing God in his dreams. Get up. Get up. You know what? There's so many words from God in the Bible that come with the words get up at the start of them. Have you ever been sitting down too long? This is you right now, maybe. Have you ever been sitting down too long and you want to get up? And when you go to get up, the old legs are just a bit stiff. There's a there's a a, a, a block of time in my week where I spend two hours in the car without getting out of it. And in those two hours, believe it or not, I do not get any further than Portadown and Rich Hill. 
come out of school on a Friday afternoon and somebody gets dropped off to music lesson in Portadown and then over to Rich Hill to leave off at another and you sit there and you wait for a while and then back over to Portadown to pick somebody up from work and then home and you've spent two hours in the car and done about 10 miles. And see when I get home and open the door of the car and go to get out, the legs are like, no, 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 you should just stay put for a while longer. Sometimes when we sit and we're immobile for a while, the, the, the call to get up can very easily be just, nah, not now. Some of us have been sitting for too long. Been sitting for too long. And God needs Josephs who will hear his word and who will get up in response to it. He obeys God and he does get up. He doesn't linger. He doesn't go and put a few things in place. He gets up immediately. He hears the word of God, the calling, Joseph, I need you to protect this new thing that I am birthing because the enemy wants to wipe it out. And Joseph gets up and he goes for it. And he makes sacrifices. Can you overlook this? This guy had a job. He had a livelihood. He had a workshop. He was a, he was a carpenter and, and he had clients and he, he did his work well and all his tools were back home in his workshop. And, and God says, you get up and you, you're going to Egypt. And he doesn't say, yeah, well, I'll go next month. I'll go home first, get my stuff and lock it up or what. No, he goes. He hears the word of God and he obeys and he makes sacrifices. And if a younger generation are going to be protected, and if the work that God wants to do among them is going to be protected and defended, then an older generation might have to make some sacrifices. Might have to get up and might have to lay down a few things that they do in order to obey God and protect the next generation. War is not over. There are many things, as I close, there are many things historically that are referred to as acts of war. For example, on September 11th, 2001, when the Twin Towers were hit, that was an act of war. That's how... America understood that and that's how they responded to it. It was an act of war. And more recently, the horrific attacks on October the 7th at the kibbutz in in southern Israel. A horrific, horrific example. Absolutely stomach-churning stuff and seen as an act of war. Savage acts against unsuspecting and innocent people. And 2,000 years ago, there was an act of war. It was not a bomb. It was not the deployment of troops. It was not a massacre of young people at a music festival. It was the birth of a baby boy. When Jesus was born, God was declaring war. He was declaring war. And it was not a war against innocent people. This war that that God declared, this act of war that was the birth of a baby boy, that act of war was against all of the darkness and evil in this world. It was God's act of war. That little, we hear all the, the background noises it's lovely, the, the, the kids and the, just some of the noises aren't so lovely, like, but most of them are, are, are quite welcome. And uh, that, that, in a feeding trough in a stable 2,000 years ago, was an act of war against everything that is dark and everything that is evil. John 
not Lenin. John wrote in one of his letters, 1 John 3, 8, that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to destroy the works of the devil. The devil is trying to ensnare and extinguish the life of God among a generation. And Jesus wants to destroy the devil's work. And the war is not over. Sorry, John Lennon. But there's another John who wrote better stuff. And he was not high on LSD when he wrote it. And he's much more accurate about war. There has been a decisive battle. John tells us that in his gospel. The decisive victory was won when the baby boy grew into a young man and then was brutally executed on a cross. And the powers of death and sin and hell and the grave were defeated. The decisive battle has been won, but the war rages on in every generation God wants to birth new things and the dragon wants to snuff them out. His doom is certain. In Revelation 20, we read that the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. That hasn't happened yet. That's a future event. Between now and then, the war rages on. And if there's one player in the Christmas story that I feel we need right now, it's Joseph. It's that heart of a strong defender who will lay down and sacrifice his own stuff, his own agenda, who will hear the voice of God, who will get up in response to it and get out there and protect what God wants to birth in the next generation. Let's pray and then... Jason, I think, is doing the next reading.